Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. You are listening to Faith in Focus, an hour-long program that seeks to examine issues from all areas of life through the perspective of faith and belief as well as the female viewpoint. My name is Saleh Bakhtiar and I will be your host for today's show with the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness triumphs over punishment because authentic punishment seeks reformation rather than vengeance. In this episode of Faith and Focus, we will study the landmarks of forgiveness, its employment and its absence in Holy Scriptures, and describe the characteristics of forgiveness, free of any subsidiary action. On the way, we will also speak on how, in raising children, it is key to differentiate when forgiving or punishment is best suit alongside how to carry out both tailored to our young and youth. I am joined here in our studio by Yasmin Mirza and Kashfa Server who will share their thoughts and reflections on some questions to explore the previously mentioned aspects. Yasmin has worked in the NHS for the last 20 years as a clinical psychologist and Kashfa studied neuroscience at uni and is currently working in administration. Welcome both of you to the show. An anecdote if I may. I enjoy my alone time and sometimes get too carried away in my endeavours. While it's very much needed, it comes with risks of losing your factor to communicate, even if it's very subtle at the start. So my mum told me this, side note, she catches on to stuff which may become a problem later on. She says something along the lines of, to discover God and build a stable communion with him, you require understanding of his attributes for which practicing his attributes is vital. So that explains why communication and the good treatment with the people around you is so important. We come into this world with the toolkits to develop into righteous beings, but we do not come in to this world knowing everything. In order to understand what may love feel like between God and you, you need to love people. Otherwise, if you don't start at the foundation, how will you unlock the path to divine love? This was a real eye-opener for me because what we do with our physical bodies gets translated onto our souls. This reminds me of an article I read online on the Al-Islam website, which said, and I quote, For us to be human in the greatest sense of what it means to be human, we too have to be proper stewards of the breath of divinity, Ruh al-Qudus, within us. فَنَفَخْنَا فِيهِ مِنْ So we breathed into him of our spirit. Chapter 66, verse 13 and to seek to perfect within ourselves the attributes of chastity, patience, steadfastness and obedience, and the attribute of being compassionate and loving beings. Allah says, The good end is for the God-fearing. Chapter 7, verse 129. End quote. As one hallmark of compassion is forgiveness, it nicely leads on to this exploration. Allah's attributes, which are discovered in his word, the Holy Quran, Al-Ghaffar, the great forgiver, Al-Ghaffur, the most forgiving, and Al-Afu, the pardoner. The meaning of Ghaffar, the root word in Arabic for istighfar, seeking forgiveness from Allah for our sins, is to cover and to conceal, and more or less the same meaning applies to Sattar, As-Sattar, another attribute of Allah, meaning he who covers others' weaknesses and fallings, and also likes the act of covering up faults. 
This is truly an extraordinary characteristic which is best explained in this hadith, saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that in the hereafter, sheltering man with his mercy, God will ask man if he did such and such deed. Man will confess that yes, he did. God will say, I covered your fault on that day and I cover your fault again. This is the loving God who forgives and covers weaknesses. Acts of such level of forgiveness can only be present in Allah. Let them forgive and forbear. Do you not desire that Allah should forgive you? And Allah is most forgiving, merciful. Briefly, I would like to quote an extract from the book Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam by the Promised Messiah, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community on whom be peace. It should be remembered that forgiveness is not a moral quality in itself. It is a natural impulse which is found in children also. It would become a moral quality when it is exercised in its proper place and on its proper occasion. Otherwise, it would also be a natural impulse. End quote. To progress this conversation, I would like to ask Gutsia for a report on what religion has to say on forgiveness. So if we desire to be forgiven and given a clean slate, so to speak, we would require to be willing to do the same for other in a moderate manner, taking the middle way, Mizan. We read in the Elementary Study of Islam an address delivered by the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to students in Spain the teaching of forgiveness are different in all three Abrahamic faiths, namely Judaism, Christianity and Islam. His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on him, states, We can refer to a teaching of the Torah which seems to deprive the Jewish people of the option of forgiveness. To a casual observer from the vantage point of the modern age, it would appear to be a rather ungodly teaching unbalanced in the favour of vengeance. Yet a closer examination of the requirements of that age would present the teaching in a completely different light. We know that the children of Israel, under the oppressive and despotic rules of pharaohs, were deprived for all their fundamental human rights. They were forced to live a life of abasement and slavery which did not recognise their right to defend themselves and hit back at the oppressor. Some two centuries of such an abject way of life had virtually robbed them of their upright noble human qualities. They would much rather give up their right to avenge in the name of forgiveness, just another name for utter cowardice. Had they been given the clear option to either take revenge or forgive, few there would be among them who would dare take the former option. As such, the teaching of the Torah, though seemingly harsh and overmuch one-sided, is the most perfect teaching in relation to the requirements of that time. It was a diseased state which was meant to be cured with the bitter pill of this injunction. About 13 centuries of practising merciless vengeance had indeed hardened the hearts of the Israelites into those of stone. It was at this juncture of time that the Messiah came who was himself forgiveness, love and modesty personified. Had God granted the Jews of his time both the options of forgiveness and revenge, they would certainly have opted for revenge without even dreaming of forgiveness. The question arises as to what should be the perfect teaching relevant to the time of Jesus. 
Forgiveness, of course, but without the option of revenge. This is exactly what happened. This illustration makes it amply clear that certain teachings, though apparently contradictory, in fact serve the same purpose and work in unison as far as the designs of God are concerned. The purpose is the healing of the sick, which may need different medicines at different times. End quote. Amidst the discussion of three stages of the state of man, the promised Messiah, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community on whom be peace, states in his book Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, after explaining the elevation of humankind from a natural barbaric state to a civilised social being. The second type of moral qualities are those that are related to doing good. The first of these is forbearance or forgiveness. He who commits an offence against another causes him pain or harm and deserves to be punished either through the process of the law, with imprisonment or fine or directly by the person offended. To forgive him, if forgiveness should be appropriate, would be to do him good. In this context, the teaching of the Holy Quran is And those who suppress anger and pardon men. The Holy Quran, Al-Imran Chapter 3, verse 135 And the recompense of an injury is an injury the like thereof. But whoso forgives and his act brings about reformation, his reward is with Allah. The Holy Quran, Ashura, chapter 42, verse 41 That is, good people are those who control their tempers when they are roused and who overlook people's faults when that is appropriate. The compensation of an injury is a penalty in proportion. But one who forgives an act which goes on to reform the offender and exercises forgiveness on its appropriate occasion will have his reward with Allah. The latter verse shows that the Qur'an does not teach non-resistance to evil on all occasions or that mischief makers and wrongdoers should never be punished. Its teaching is that one must consider whether the occasion calls for forgiveness or punishment and to adopt the course which would be best in the interests both of the offender and the public. Sometimes an offender turns away from wrongdoing in consequence of being forgiven and sometimes forgiveness incites him to further wrongdoing. Therefore God Almighty directs that we should not develop the habit of forgiving blindly on all occasions but should consider carefully whether forgiveness or punishment would be most appropriate, and therefore a virtue in each particular case, and should adopt that course. Some people are so vindictive that they keep in mind the wrongs done to their ancestors through generations, and there are others who carry forbearance and forgiveness to the extreme, sometimes even to the limit of shamelessness. They exercise such weakness, forgiveness and forbearance as are utterly inconsistent with dignity, honour and chastity. Their conduct is a stain on good character and the result of their forgiveness and forbearance is that people are disgusted with them. That is why the Holy Quran attaches the condition of appropriate time and place for the exercise of every moral quality and does not approve the exercise of a moral quality out of its place. Thank you, Kutia, for the report. Now with Yasmin and Gashva, I would like to take the subject further and explore its application. Forgiveness being such an integral part 
of religion, as a religious person, it makes me think that there must be some obvious psychological benefits that cause it to remain a huge part of therapy and development in general. So when researching, I came across some interesting findings which demonstrate that forgiveness has astounding pros and it's not just pushed as a moral act in the secular world, but countlessly is the solution to respective situations. In the 2008 published study called The Forgiving Child, the impact of forgiveness education on executive anger for elementary age children in Milwaukee's central city in USA, the connection between forgiveness and mental health in children was examined. The Enbright Process mode model of forgiveness is a classroom program which is based on the idea that forgiveness is a gradual process that allows the individual to feel less estranged from the offender and eventually re-establish a connection in a reconciliation. The model proposes that forgiveness can be facilitated through specific guidance, such as modelling forgiveness, teaching empathy and promoting perspective-taking. The four phases of the model are helpful for revealing what forgiveness can look like in practice. I think it suffice to say that we can have a whole show on this forgiveness model. But at the time of the study, the city of Milwaukee in USA has seen both economic loss and rising poverty and crime, which disproportionately impacted residents in the inner city or central city. Their background research showed that children in impoverished communities are at a greater risk of experiencing direct and indirect violence. And the longer that these children were exposed to poverty and violence, the greater their risk of mental health problems. The understanding was that such exposures led to children developing anger and depressive symptoms, which later reveal negative outcomes such as poor academic progress, poor interpersonal relationships and substance abuse as a result of coping mechanisms. However, since previous studies dealt with the management of anger, anger symptoms once they occurred showed more reactive than preventative solutions. The research discovered that children who are taught to forgive are more likely to have positive mental health outcomes, such as improved self-esteem, better relationships with peers and family, and reduced levels of anxiety and depression. The study also proposed that forgiveness can be taught to children using different techniques, including demonstrating forgiveness, teaching empathy, and promoting um, perspective taking. So from this, I would like to ask Yasmin, why is it that this forgiveness model proves to be so fruitful? So you ask a very attention-grabbing question. Um, and I say that because as, as adults, we've all have experienced being wronged or treated unjustly by another person. And we are all familiar with the consequences of how that experience makes us feel. So we feel angry, we feel resentful, betrayed, disappointed, preoccupied with the injustice, just to name a few. And so this research on the forgiveness model begs the question, is it really possible to let go of pain and hurt? And can we go one step further and show compassion to the person who has wronged us? Well, Dr Enright, a psychologist and founder of the International Forgiveness Institute, provides a yes in answer to this question through his development of a process model of forgiveness. And unsurprisingly, this model does not offer a quick fix. There are 20 steps in this process, eight more than the Alcohol Anonymous 12 Steps to Sobriety. So this just shows that arriving at forgiveness is no easy process. 
So we don't have time to go into detail for all 20 steps, but I can instead mention the four phases of forgiveness. The first phase is the uncovering phase, which includes validation of the emotional wound caused by the injustice. So here, acknowledging the emotions felt is important rather than denying or suppressing them. And giving the person time to make sense of these painful emotions is key in allowing the person to recognise that the effects of injustice is often worse than the injustice itself. Because remaining in a state of unforgiveness, a person can feel preoccupied, they can feel fatigued, struggle sleeping, taking out anger on others and feeling hatred and so on. So a person can then move to the next phase called the decision phase. So this is when a person makes a conscious decision to be open to the idea of forgiveness and entertain the possibility of letting go of anger. And then the work phase begins where a person looks at different perspectives. So, for example, who is the person that has wronged you? Is this person wounded? Do they have a lack of training? What kind of upbringing did they have? So that a common humanity is realised where people make mistakes, including ourselves, where we ourselves have relied on another person's forgiveness. And then the last stage is the discovery phase, where we begin to see the benefits of this process as the person with the courage of developing empathy for the wounds of others has a new understanding of their own strength and an opportunity to develop new meaning and purpose and possibilities to reconnect with faith. So this shows that this model offers an opportunity to bear many fruits of letting go of anger and resentment and changing woundedness to peace of mind. But forgiveness is a skill that requires commitment, effort and much practice. Thank you, Yasmin. Very well explained. So leading on from that and it being common knowledge that children learn from actions than words. When, dis uh, when disciplining children, often it's hard to predict if forgiveness or a mild punishment would consequent better habits and understanding in children. What do you two believe helps us categorize this issue and assist us in appropriately picking which parenting style to opt? So developmental psychologists have defined four main types of parenting that can reflect the emphasis on forgiveness favored over punishment or vice versa. So authoritarian parenting, for example, may use punishments instead of discipline as the focus is on obedience. So rather than teach the child how to make better choices, the emphasis is on rule enforcement. So while the child may have a strong sense of safety, the risks of this type of parenting is that the child may become hostile or aggressive and rebel against the strict rules. On the other end of the spectrum, permissive parenting relies on no rules or boundaries. So although a permissive parent may express a lot of love, the lack of boundaries increases the risk of the child feeling insecure. Moving on to uninvolved or neglectful parenting, this also involves a lack of rules but also a lack of love. And this often may not be intentional but arises as a result of parents feeling overwhelmed with life stresses, not having the knowledge of uh, child development or being consumed by their own health problems. So children may go up with poor or estranged relationships with uninvolved parents. The final parenting style is authoritative parenting, which is cited as the best combination of love and discipline, demonstrating a compassionate yet firm authority. 
there are clear boundaries and expectations of behaviour. Good behaviour is modelled by the parents. Positive behaviour of children is noticed and rewarded. And discipline is consistent and followed through. So whilst we can take good ideas from this authoritative parenting style, it is important to note that it is developed from a Eurocentric cultural perspective that does not necessarily take into account other cultures such as African, Asian, Indian or Pakistani and therefore may not relate to the same positive outcomes in children from global majority families. So in addition, it is likely that in two parent families, both parents have different parenting style tendencies. Uh, so where it is essential that parents learn to cooperate as they combine various elements of their unique parenting styles in the best interests of their children. Kashwa? Um, this is an interesting question. And uh, hearing Yasmin really opened my eyes to the different parenting styles. Literature on parenting and the psychology papers publicly available has proven to be quite useful, which has helped me in preparing for the show. Children by nature are innocent and are inherently good-natured at birth. Until they reach the age of around seven or even ten years, they remain mainly good-natured. You may have also noticed this, but when a mother has scolded her young child, after a while the child may forget that they were scolded and will return to start showing love and affection to their mother like they always have been. Generally, parents are held in very high esteem in their child's eyes, so they try their best not to hurt them in any way and will immediately choose reconciliation. So when a child does something wrong, something morally wrong, like stealing or lying, parents are advised to approach this gently. Children don't usually have negative intentions and mishaps are genuine mistakes. Every parent knows their child well, and if they feel the child has made a mistake, they can try and choose forgiveness over punishment. However, if forgiveness does not lead to lessons learned from their mistake and actually result in worsening of the behaviour, there can be some disciplining. But a careful analysis is required, tailored to each child, and adapted at time and place, as well as acclimatising it as the child grows older. Children also monitor and mimic their parents' behaviour so parents will assess themselves and see what weaknesses they have instead of scolding their children because majority of the time, the root cause of a child behaving in a certain way is due to the parents themselves who have these weaknesses. That's why I personally leaning towards forgiveness as this will also instill the habit of forgiveness in the child. As specifically Islamic perspective, I would add that recently the current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, was asked the question on what to do when someone hurts your sentiments and it's difficult to forgive them. His Holiness may Allah be his helper replied that as far as the matter of forgiving is concerned, if you observe that they have reformed themselves, then forgive them and do not keep any malice in your heart for them, regardless of how much pain they may have caused you. And if someone does not reform themselves, then it's best to keep a distance from them and to remain in the company of good friends. It becomes a sin if a person who has been wronged then harbours that in their hearts and seeks to inflict harm on the other person in retaliation. One who is compassionate, just as we raise the slogan, love for all, hatred for none, then to claim to not have hatred for anyone means that we do not harbour hatred in our hearts for that person, Rather, we dislike the person's actions. 
His Holiness explained beautifully here how we should hate the action, not the person, and should forgive them. If that is not possible, it is best to just keep a distance from that person. In a podcast with Phil Cosino, an American author and lecturer, when asked how does atonement relate to forgiveness, Phil replied, the act of forgiveness is kind of going halfway and then stopping. Doing something to make amends that is psychologically commensurate with the damage that was done. Then the healing can begin. Again, as a Muslim referring to the verse of the Holy Quran, chapter 24, verse 23, let them forgive and forbear. Do you not desire that Allah should forgive you? And Allah is most forgiving, merciful. Unquote. We're reminded that forgiving is better for us, judging the condition and time. Are there any internal mechanisms within our bodily systems which alter, preferably in a positive manner, which lead to the betterment of our well-being after exercising forgiveness? So research into forgiveness is relatively new in that the first empirically based published article only appeared in 1989. Um, but since this time, there's been a huge growth in research looking at both the psychological and physical benefits of forgiveness. Physical measures such as blood pressure, heart rate, skin temperature, magnetic resonance imaging, otherwise known as MRI, have shown positive effects on both physical and mental health as a result of forgiveness. Studies show that the act of forgiveness delivers tangible structural changes in the brain and the body. This is because research shows that neural networks that control stress, pain and awareness of threat, where these processes increase stress hormones in the body and negatively impact physical and mental health, all these processes are dialed down by acts of forgiveness. Put another way, the opposite emotion to forgiveness can be seen to be anger. And this emotion activates the fight or flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease and diabetes, among other conditions. And a very surprising outcome of one of the earlier studies focusing specifically on the link between forgiveness and health benefits found that even thinking about forgiving an offender improved people's cardiovascular and nervous system. And then additionally, there are other studies that have commented not only on the improvement in the regulation of the stress response, but also the reporting of better self-rated health status and the demonstration of positive health behaviours. So specifically, the improvements of mental health as a result of uh, forgiveness includes increases in hope, compassion, self-confidence, empathy and higher life satisfaction. So we now have robust evidence to show the benefits of forgiveness, which can be important to understand, as in the previous question, we outlined the work phase of forgiveness, which is not an easy process and requires a lot of commitment, a lot of practice and a lot of courage. That's truly, really interesting. So moving on, as mentioned earlier in the report read by Kutsia, Abrahamic faiths illustrate such wisdom in their practice or absence of forgiveness. I'm curious, what other faiths teach and promote in terms of forgiveness? Kashfa, what faiths share similar beliefs and what faiths sit on opposite ends and what is their story behind it? Well, all religions emphasize forgiveness, whether it's divine forgiveness, which is asking for forgiveness from God, or forgiving other human beings. 
So I will take the example of Buddhism, Sikhism, and Hinduism, as these three faiths share some similarity in their teachings. They all originated from South Asia, but they still have some distinct differences in their teachings on forgiveness. Buddhism places a strong emphasis on compassion and forgiveness. The concept of forgiveness is closely tied to the idea of letting go of attachment and cultivating a compassionate heart. The practice of forgiveness in Buddhism often involves acknowledging the nature of suffering, understanding the impermanence of phenomena, which is the uncertainty of reality, and letting go of resentment and ill will. In Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, which is the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering, and the Eightfold Path, provide a framework for understanding suffering and the path to liberation, which includes the cultivation of forgiveness and compassion. Sikhism also teaches the importance of forgiveness and compassion. The central scripture of Sikhism, the Guru Granth Sahib, emphasizes the virtues of humility, contentment and forgiveness. Sikhs are encouraged to forgive those who wrong them and to live in accordance with the principles of truth and justice. The concept of Miripiri in Sikhism reflects the integration of spirituality and temporal aspects of life, and forgiveness is seen as a key aspect of spiritual maturity. Hinduism encompasses a vast and diverse range of beliefs, and attitudes towards forgiveness can vary among different sects and traditions. The concept of forgiveness is often connected to the broader Hindu philosophy, including the idea of karma and the cycle of reincarnations. Hindu scriptures such as the Bhagavad Gita advocate performing one's duties without attachment to the result and cultivating a sense of detachment, which can contribute to a forgiving attitude. All three religions emphasize the importance of compassion and non-harm, aka Ahimsa. Ahimsa is a key principle in Indian religions which is practicing non-violence towards living creatures. Forgiveness is seen as a natural extension of these principles. Another similarity between the three is the ideas of detachment from material possessions and egolessness are shared among these religions. Letting go of personal attachments is often seen as a path to forgiveness. And finally, the concept of karma though interpreted differently, is present in Buddhism, Sikhism and Hinduism. Actions and their consequences play a role in shaping one's life and future, and forgiveness is often linked to the resolution of karmic debts. These are just basic points on forgiveness for these three religions. Thank you, Gashwa. This is the Voice of Islam Radio. You are listening to Faith and Focus. We will now take a short break. Stay tuned. You are listening to Faith in Focus. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, said, Allah will cover up the faults on the Day of Judgment of him who covers up the faults of another in this world. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and 
via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Faith and Focus at Voice of Islam, where we are talking about forgiveness. And I have here with me in the studio, Yasmin Mirza and Gashva Sarva. Now, generally talking about forgiving injustices incurring by bigger powers, such as nations or leaders, we can see countless examples in history found in all parts of the world. Philosopher Lucy Alais, in a conversation with Vox, discusses forgiveness and punishment. Since she grew up in the apartheid South Africa, that country's experience informed how she thinks about forgiveness in an explicitly political context. Alais believes that forgiveness is a release from warranted guilt and that is important to find ways of exposing people to other people's narratives and experiences in order to foster forgiveness. Sadly, there's an increase in conflict in the world. I see people who previously despised politics getting vocal about affairs and states, etc. How can greater nations cultivate forgiveness regardless of whether they are motivated by remorse, which otherwise seems absent? Well, cultivating forgiveness on a national level, especially when remorse seems absent, can be complex and a challenging process. Reading upon this, I discovered that there are actually several strategies that nations can employ to foster forgiveness and reconciliation. For example, this can be done by acknowledging and confronting past wrongs. A recognition of historical injustices is crucial. Nations need to acknowledge and confront the wrongs committed in the past. There's been many wrongs in the past, like you mentioned, the apartheid in South Africa. And we can see throughout history, there's always been a group of people that has been oppressed. So acknowledging it is essential. This can involve public apologies, official acknowledgements and educational programs that teach true history. Educational initiatives could include implementing educational programs that promote empathy and understanding among citizens. This includes teaching accurate historical accounts, encouraging critical thinking and fostering a sense of shared humanity. It's crucial that the public is allowed to formulate their own opinions rather than feeding them facts and beliefs that they should have, which we see the media doing today. There can be promotion of holding dialogues. This would entail encouraging open and honest dialogue between different communities. This can involve public forums, community discussions and intercultural events that bring people together to share their perspectives and build mutual understanding. International mediation is helpful in such situations as well. So seeking assistance from international organisations or third-party mediators to facilitate diplomatic efforts works. Neutral parties can help bridge gaps between nations and create an environment conducive to forgiveness and reconciliation. Then there are also legal measures, such legal measures that hold individuals accountable for past wrongs, whilst ensuring fair and just legal processes should be supported. This can help rebuild trust in the justice system and demonstrate a commitment to the rule of law, and not allowing some nations to bypass the law, which still happens today. Another useful way is cultural exchange programs. These should be facilitated to promote people-to-people connections. Exposure to each other's cultures can break down stereotypes, foster empathy and build connections that transcend political boundaries. We also have humanitarian initiatives, engaging in joint humanitarian efforts that address common challenges work well. Collaborative projects focused on health, 
environment or poverty reduction can create common ground and build a foundation for improved relations. Long-term diplomacy is of course most beneficial. Commitment to long-term diplomatic efforts that prioritize relationship building over immediate gains is most significant. Patience and persistence are key in fostering forgiveness on an international scale. Last but not least, social healing should be promoted. There should be investment in programs that support social healing and reconciliation at the grassroots level. This can include mental health support for affected communities and initiatives that promote social cohesion. Cultivating forgiveness on a national scale is a gradual process that requires sustained effort, commitment, and a genuine desire for positive change. It may involve a combination of the strategies I just mentioned and adaptation to the specific cultural and historical context for each nation. Thank you, Gashva, for that. There was another interesting element I came across. Since most forgiveness-heavy content is linked to spirituality, I wasn't surprised that Alcohol Anonymous, like Yasmin previously mentioned, connects with forgiveness as found referenced in their manual, The Big Book, first published in 1939. The purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous, just briefly, um, is of course to help people recover from alcoholism and maintain sobriety and consists of 12 steps where the individual admits to God, accepts and wishes to amend their mistakes. In the big book, forgiveness is a vital component of the healing process. On page 66 it says, forgiveness is a decision, not an emotion, and it must be sincere to get results. The book goes on to discuss how crucial it is to forgive not just those who have harmed us, but also ourselves. On page 67 it says, Perhaps the greatest sufferer from resentment is he who harbours it. The big book urges us to practice forgiveness by letting go of old grudges and learning to love unconditionally. It discusses how carrying grudges may be a significant barrier to sobriety and encourages us to give up on resentment, release it with love and compassion. This advice has helped many people reach sobriety, yet I believe the application of such concepts is pretty vast. This leads me to a sensitive topic, and as unfortunate as it is, a handful of people suffer from childhood trauma. Therapists and studies show best results when victims forgive their perpetrator and move forwards in the future. Yasmin, could you explain the theory behind this, the difficulties involved and the impact forgiveness has here in this case? Uh, yes, you're right to say that this is a sensitive topic. So, because if you Google forgiveness and childhood traumas, such as acts of sexual abuse, rape, exploitation, physical and emotional abuse, the search engine brings up as many articles on forgiveness and se sexual trauma, as well as the subject titles such as Stop Telling Victims to Forgive Their Abusers. So it's really important to tread very sensitively in answering this question. We've already spoken about the advantages of Enright's process of forgiveness model where the negative impact of remaining in a state of unforgiveness can be harmful. Uh, we previously mentioned that a person can feel preoccupied, they can feel fatigued, they can struggle sleeping, they may take their anger out on others or they feel hatred and so on. And so the process of forgiveness allows a person to resolve some of these difficulties. 
There are indeed a number of studies that have discussed the positive effects of forgiveness in victims of sexual abuse. So, for example, uh, mitigating or alleviating negative emotions such as anger, hostility, resentment, shame, humiliation, uh, as well as mitigating negative thoughts such as repetitive and intrusive thoughts and also uh, reducing avoidance behaviour. So we have by now highlighted that forgiveness is a complex, multidimensional concept and therefore it's important to note that forgiveness is not essential in a victim's healing process. In addition, forgiveness must be clearly differentiated from reconciliation. A person can forgive... But this does not mean that a relationship is restored. In fact, studies have showed that most victims of abuse prefer to keep their distance from their abuser, regardless of whether they uh, said that they have forgiven them or not. And also, forgiveness should not be confused with the absence of the need for justice. You can forgive and still seek justice. So the difficulties involved in forgiveness in childhood trauma can also be complicated by social pressure. So, for example, the victims may have been overtly or subtly told that the abuse is unforgivable, that they must forget the abuse and not talk about it, that they must forgive in order to protect the integrity of the family or the community, or that they must be the eternal victim and never forgive in order to make the seriousness of the offence clear. So, in summary, forgiveness can be proposed as a tool to help and heal the pain of victims of child sexual abuse, but a cautionary note is that there should be an avoidance of transmitting any kind of moral obligation and that forgiveness is a choice and not every victim will choose forgiveness. This is very interesting, um, Yasmin, and uh, truly very eye-opening. Thank you. Having a medical background, for me, forgiveness is similar to an active ingredient found in medication. Forgiveness being the element responsible for the main treating action. However, the main active ingredient is accompanied with excipients and adjuvants, which assist and allow for efficient deliverance of said main ingredient. Like in the case with metformin hydrochloride, which is the active ingredient, and is the most common antidiabetic medication. It requires diluents like cellulose and disintegrants like sodium starch glyconate, which help with rapid absorption of the drug into the bloodstream. Then the site of action. Forgiveness requires patience and respect because who am I to hold a grudge longer than what the injury incurred? Philosopher Peric Millam in an article on legal philosophy, discusses the reasons behind forgiveness. He believes that in order to forgive oneself, one must believe that one has done something wrong and that one was responsible for the harm caused. Millam also discusses the role of forgiveness in the legal system and how it can be used to promote justice and reconciliation. I want to know what makes forgiveness so hard and are those feelings valid which ward us off from forgiving sometimes? So, as mentioned before, when we're wronged, as human beings, we feel deeply an emotional wound as a result of injustice shown by another person. And anger is a common response to something that has happened that we perceive to be unjust, rude, hurtful or mean. 
And from a primitive perspective, we can understand this other person's behaviour can be seen as a threat. So such interpersonal threats can threaten our sense of identity, our respect and importance. So such interpersonal threats can also trigger shame and humiliation as a result of feeling disrespected. So this can lead to intense feelings, anger being a dominant emotion. And when our sense of self is threatened, we can now better start to understand why forgiveness feels like such a hard thing to do. In answer to your question, are difficult feelings valid? Well, in my work as a psychologist, all emotions are valid, either positive or negative, and all emotions have evolutionary functions. So anger, hurt and shame can indeed get in the way of being able to forgive. So it's interesting to understand that the function of anger is to protect us from threat and is a primitive response driven by the reptilian part of our brain. And so this is the oldest part of our brain, which is approximately 300 million years old. And so this part of the brain controls basic survival. So when the reptilian part of the brain is activated in response to interpersonal threats, such as feeling disrespective, the slower decision-making rational brain that can take into account long-term consequences and the feelings of others, uh, this part of the brain can take a back seat, which is why we may say and do things that we wouldn't do when we're calm. And then we can get caught up in something called the angry trap. In response to interpersonal threats, such as feeling judged, feeling criticised or disrespected by others, we can explode with an angry response or we can bottle things up to avoid conflict. So neither response can help with confronting the emotional wound and seek uh, some form of reparation. So this is where learning how to respond to emotions is important, at, as it is not the emotion in and of itself that is the problem. So skills like stepping back, perspective taking, deep breathing, muscle relaxation, redirecting attention, using assertive communication and learning how to express feelings are all important to help with the work of forgiveness. Uh, Yasmin has spoken very comprehensively and I would just add that I completely agree with her that forgiveness can be a complex and challenging process and various factors contribute to its difficulty. The emotional pain caused by being wronged can be intense and it's entirely valid to feel hurt or betrayed. These emotions make it hard to understand the motives or reasons behind someone's actions. Without a clear understanding, forgiveness may be elusive. Validating the need for clarity or closure is essential in such cases. People may feel that forgiveness implies letting the wrongdoer off the hook without facing consequences. The desire for justice and accountability is valid and may hinder forgiveness until those needs are addressed. It's crucial to acknowledge and validate the emotions and concerns that hinder forgiveness. At the same time, it's important to explore the potential benefits of forgiveness for one's own well-being and its importance in the steps to self-healing. Thank you both. You both touched on very valid and poignant points. Moving on, Charlotte Van Ollian Vitvilliet professor of psychology at Hope College, researching forgiveness, justice and accountability in her laboratory, also belonging to the Christian faith, made some observations in an interview with Jim Stump from Biologos. 
I have read a transcription of the interview, and in it she said, and I quote, Reconciliation here and now sometimes is unwise, unsafe and impossible. In God's good future, we have eschatological hope that God will reconcile all things. But we are in the here and now, the already and the not yet. And so one thing to understand about the research on forgiveness is that the internal processing within the person is still understood to be important for forgiveness or for forgiving. And as Christians, we can understand that we do so before God and that in God all things hold together. In Christ all things hold together. So that even when we cannot perfectly reconcile with the person, so that even when we cannot perfectly reconcile with the person, and even when we don't receive a repentant, humbly accountable transformation from our wrongdoer, there is a way in which we can still hold that person accountable and forgive. The interview is packed with thought-provoking concepts, one which sounds surreal, claiming that some people are genetically more likely to show more empathy and hence act more forgivingly. She later goes on to say, So I'm going to share with you a definition of forgiveness that I hold. And the reality is that when we're using measures in experimental work, we need to use validated measures that exist. And that means that we're relying on the work of others as well, right? So when you when you have fields that develop, there's a history to that. So just to be mindful of that. But I define forgiving as a process of responding to the person who's responsible responsible for one's experience of a hurtful injustice, in which the forgiver relinquishes resentment and retaliation towards that person for that wrongdoing, while genuinely wishing that person well in positive reformation, unquote. Though this program's prime focus is the act of forgiveness, please do explain the distinction between sincere and false repentance and maybe answering the question if you believe that is it possible to forgive oneself? If I can ask you both, what is your take on uh, on forgiveness's role in resolving fundamental issues? So self-forgiveness can be described as finding a way to separate out the actions we regret from our core self or being so that we have space to find ways to move forwards. So how can we arrive at self-forgiveness? A psychologist called Marilyn Cornish has developed a self-forgiveness intervention which, which provides a framework for this work to be done. It begins with accepting responsibility for any harm you have caused, then acknowledging your regret without lapsing into shame. Next is restoration, in which you strive to repair the damage you have caused and recommit to your values. And then the final step is renewal, moving on with a renewed sense of self-trust and self-acceptance. However, Michael Wall, a professor in psychology, cautions us that self Forgiveness shouldn't come too easily. So, for example, some people engage in what Wall calls pseudo self-forgiveness or, as you've described, uh, false repentance. So this is defined as a person forgiving themselves for wrongdoing without really taking responsibility for whatever it was that they did wrong. So, for example, a graduate student might miss a deadline for a class assignment and forgive themselves for doing so, but believe deep 
down that the real transgression was made by the professor who didn't allow enough time for the assignment. So in this case, we can see that the student isn't taking on responsibility for missing their deadline and instead attributing the blame outside of themselves. And then in addition, another example of false repentance is forgiving yourself prematurely. And then another example, a smoker who's trying to quit and keeps forgiving themselves for slipping up. What this person is inadvertently doing is letting go of the negative feelings a person may have for the smoking behaviour, where the slip-ups reinforce continued smoking behaviour. So therefore, Wall states that true self-forgiveness should be a process that you engage in after you've stopped engaging in the ongoing negative behaviour, where it is potentially counterproductive to forgive yourself before you've stopped. So in summary, just as we've described the process of forgiveness as a slow, deliberate and effortful process that includes painful emotions, so too, I think, is the process of self-forgiveness. Yes, I also do believe that it is possible to forgive oneself. Today, we have talked about many aspects of forgiveness which can be applied to ourselves as well. Self-forgiveness is a complex and personal process that involves accepting responsibility for one's actions, acknowledging any harm caused, and finding a way to move forward with the commitment to positive change. It may require introspection, self-reflection, and sometimes seeking support from others, such as friends, family, or mental health professionals. From a religious angle, of course, a Muslim would first and foremost sincerely seek forgiveness from God for whatever wrong that one may have committed. Well, thank you. I'm afraid this is all the time we have for today. Everyone has different perspectives and points of view on how they see the world, for which McGill puts it nicely in his book, The Four Arguments, a practice guide to personal freedom. He says, we make the assumption that everyone sees life the way we do. We assume that others think the way we think, feel the way we feel, judge the way we judge, and abuse the way we abuse. This is the biggest assumption that the humans make. And this is why we have a fear of being ourselves around others, because we think everyone else will judge us, victimize us, abuse us, and blame us as we do ourselves. So even before others have a chance to reject us, we have already rejected ourselves. This is the way the human minds work, end quote. So this got me thinking that since the topic of forgiveness is widely discussed and it would be useful to hear varied points of view, seeing that all preach forgiveness but deliver us to that same endpoint via different roads. So would you please share, just before we wrap up, your most favourite quote on forgiveness or even poetry that you have come across when researching this topic? In response to this, I'm inclined to quote a verse of the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran is replete with the significance and importance of compassion and forgiveness. God himself states in the Quran that all of his attributes, the attribute of mercy, is the overriding attribute by stating, My mercy encompasses all things. Chapter 7, verse 157. So the Quranic verse I would like to quote now emphasizes the importance of forgiveness in a deeper sense. It states, and if I may quote, And the recompense of an injury is an injury, the like thereof. But whoso forgives and his act brings about reformation, his reward is with Allah. Surely he loves not the wrongdoers. End quote. Surah Ashura, chapter 42, verse 41. 
Ultimately, we as Muslims need to keep God as our priority and the reason for any action. This verse reminds us to let go of our egos and to live for the sake of God. Beautiful. I really appreciate both of you coming onto this show, sharing your thoughts, ideas, and most importantly, your wisdom. In my conclusion, I would like to read an excerpt from a booklet of translated letters of Sir Zafrullah Khan, an international jurist and a president of UN General Assembly, amongst other many significant titles. He has written, like always, with so much compassion and such a timely manner as you will see on the forgiving God. An attribute of Allah the Almighty is that he forgives the sins of man, not just in the sense that they are spared punishment of their sins, but also in the sense that he absorbs and obliterates their sins as if they did not ever happen. This is because he has the power over everything. Past, present and future are mere human requisites. Allah is above it all and commands it all. In short, his varied attributes which one may learn through a study of the Holy Quran and which are explained in detail in the writings of the Promised Messiah, peace be on him, and Hazrat Khalifatul Masih II, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, have all a mutual connection. Each attribute has its own operational sphere and does not conflict with the other. On the contrary, it is a joint effort like that of an organized body where different departments manage different branches and sections, issue orders from them and supervise and check them. Similarly, though on a much larger scale and on a much more organized way and with excellent elegance, Allah's attributes are active within their space. Forgiveness is the sweetest revenge, Isaac Friedman. With that, thank you for listening and please join us again next time for more discussions on matters of faith and belief. You've been listening to Faith and Focus, produced by Mrs. Shermeen Butt. Assalamu alaikum.